This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. The silence is broken by somebody crying, trying to be heard, never a word. Always the attitude, sort out your own, always alone, wishing for something the world is denying. Out in the wilderness, somebody's crying. Somebody wishing for something to happen, wishing to tell. Wishing to help Someone was listening Someone who cared Never despaired Someone to lean on And someone to trust Who needs your assistance And finds your disgust Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another year of For the Wild podcast. We want to extend a huge bow to everyone who contributed to the Kickstarter and helped us become the most backed farm project in Kickstarter history. With your donations, we've been able to gear up for our first batch of 40,000 trees next month. We're also excited to launch our new podcast study guides which are an amazing resource to learn more about these complex topics. Head over to forthewild.world to download them soon. Today we are speaking with Angelo Baca. As a PhD student in the Department of Anthropology at New York University, Angelo has research interest in indigenous international repatriation, indigenous food sovereignty, and sacred lands protection. He promotes a local participatory research methodology and empowering traditional knowledge keepers. He has taught a variety of Native American and Indigenous course topics from college to Ivy League university settings. As a documentary filmmaker, Angelo has developed digital storytelling projects in close collaboration with Indigenous communities. His latest film is Sashja Bears Ears. He is the co-president of the Native American and Indigenous Students Group at NYU, assisting in facilitating an Indigenous Studies program minor, and he is also on the selection committee for the Chief Diversity Officer at NYU. Angelo, thank you so much for being here to speak with us today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I wanted to just kind of clarify also, the international repatriation is repatriation beyond NAGPRA. So the Native American Graves Protection Act of the 90s, you know, that was specific to the United States. And it's for returning 
ancestral remains, culturally significant items, and protection of sacred places. And so my work kind of really transferred over very well into doing work for Utah Denebikea as their new fellow, working to protect sacred lands. This really is kind of overall connected in a really particular way. So there's lots of ways to talk about the history, the culture, the ecology, the place that we call sacred for a number of reasons. And I think there, there's a lot of discussion around different kinds of ways to define that. And there are Western ways and there are indigenous ways. And somewhere in between, we kind of have to figure out those ways to help inform each other and strengthen each other's perspectives and point of views. You know, that's what I find the most exciting about this work. Gosh, well, thank you so much for dedicating yourself to this work as it feels so foundational in moving forward in a regenerative way. And mm-hmm. I want to say, speaking with you was really in response to the recent and unlawful call by President Trump to reduce Bears Ears National Monument by 85%. This land, the Colorado Plateau of southeastern Utah, is a land of winding canyons and diverse intact ecology and culture and immense sacredness, which accompanied by the shrinking of Grand Escalante Staircase National Monument by 46%, this is the largest elimination of protected land in American history. So I want to start off by saying that in behalf of the entire team at For the Wild, and I'm sure all of our listeners as well, that we want to thank you you and all the protectors of Bears Ears, and we stand with you and we will continue to do so no matter what it takes to keep this precious land protected. Angelo, I would love to ask you to begin by grounding this conversation in the land, the plants, the people, the creatures, the soil, the spirit that is Bears Ears. Is there a story or a memory of Bears Ears that sits in your heart to share with us? Well, first of all, I got to follow cultural protocol and I got to do this right because, you know, as a guest on your show, I am really a newcomer, a stranger, somebody who hasn't really met anybody there. So in the traditional way, we give our own introductions. So I say myself, my clans. My, in my own language in Navajo. So I said, hello, my name's Angelo Baca. These are my clans. I'm from these lines of my people. They are like the basic components of who I am. Whenever I give my clan introduction like that, whenever most traditional Navajos give introductions like that, they are identifying the line of their people, their community, their matriarchal lines of family. And so my transparency, my accountability, my responsibility is primary to them, to my community, to my tribe. And then that's also another way of like making my identification for my surrounding Navajo people and for the rest of the world so they know exactly who I am. So this is where I come from. I come from this area, from San Juan County, from Bears Ears. My grandmother has stories that trace us all the way back to this place. And 
she's been very instrumental in the development of me as a person, learning the cultural ways, the language, the history, learning about ceremonies and prayer and practicing our traditional ways of spirituality. And, you know, Bears Ears has always been a significant cultural site for us. It was something I learned about as a child. Growing up here, I knew that it was a particularly powerful and, you know, special place. And it was never really at the forefront of any headlines back then, but it was always important to us. And so this comes from a place before any of this press, before the United States, before any settler colonial incursion into our territories. This was a very important and sacred place. It still is. It's indigenous land and it always will be indigenous land. So for the most part, I really have a lot of respect for my elders, for the traditional people, for a lot of our leaders who took the initiative, you know, to do a lot of the groundwork, the cultural mapping, the documentation of stories, of places, understanding where the harvesting sites are, where the hunting grounds are, where the ceremonial places are, where the sacred sites are. So this was a lot of work. It was years and years of putting together and accumulating this data, which made its way into a formal proposal for protection of the original 1.9 million acres. So this has been a grassroots initiative started by Native people who really wanted to protect a very sacred landscape. And so me working to support them is a huge honor. It's a way for me to understand who I am, where I come from, and what I'm doing now. And it's very fulfilling work because it's something that, you know, it it feels particularly spiritually inner strengthening, but also it's working to utilize all of the skills and education that I've been having, you know, up to this point. So I feel like I've been working my whole life to do this work. And, you know, it's a huge honor to work for my elders and leaders. They're basically my professors, you know, they're my leaders, my mentors, and I have nothing but huge respect for them. And I, I'm really glad that I could do this work with them. Oh my gosh, Angelo, I'm so glad that you are doing this work. As you were speaking about your elders and the communities who have mapped this area and all the work that went into protecting this land from the colonizers in the first place, you know, I wanted to ask, following Zinke's review and Trump's proclamation to reduce Bears Ears, what has been the feeling, the response within the communities who have worked so tirelessly to draft the proposal and achieve the monument designation? It's interesting to bring up, you know, the sort of community feel of the way that things have been progressing for the monument, because we have a lot of conflicting reports and stories out there about what it is that we're doing, what the monument is about, how it came to be, and who benefits and who doesn't. But the truth is, anytime that you're talking about heritage, it's always going to be political. It's always going to be economic. It's always going to be, you know, a cultural positioning of power in different respects. And you have that both in your community and outside in the public eye. And so there are different reports, you know, about like 
if this is beneficial or not, or what is the impact going to be. And for me, I think the most convincing determining factor is that my elders and my traditional leaders are the ones who come from that place and have fostered and developed these relationships in a positive, good way. And, you know, it's not about land, property, ownership, you know, about keeping people out. It's actually quite the opposite. It's about inclusion and coalition building and solidarity and partnership building. It's about opening up and refreshing those relationships that used to be and the new ones that are coming now. So from families who never used to talk to each other to tribes who used to fight each other to relationships and governments that have been historically difficult, this has been a really beautiful and healing process to try to renew you know, that kind of inclusion and solidarity and, and the healing because we've always maintained that this monument is about healing. It's the development of trying to make people understand and have conversations and have like these very deep in-depth discussions down to the root, the source of what it is we're talking about. Not just the symptomatic surface topics of governance and jurisdictions and you know, competing claims of land ownership. Those debates are valid, but they're still on the top of what actually matters. They're only just the outside of what we're talking about to the core, which is respecting all of our relatives because people have made this discussion particularly about people, whether they're native people or non-native people, there are all these ideas of, you know, if this is a good idea or not. But I very rarely hear the discussion about our other relatives, the other than human beings, you know, the spirits of the land, of the plants, the animals, the trees, the rocks, the rivers, all the things that live out there that can be classified and not classified because there are spirits that live out there and there are ancient ancestral burial grounds and those places need protection and for too long they've had no protection from these other outside forces coming in so we can continue to do what we've been doing which hasn't worked very well or we can do what we have been as native people doing for centuries before anybody got here which was our own ways of stewardship management taking care of the land and the plants and the animals and so what we have to do a lot is kind of bring people up to speed between 200 and 500 plus years of how we do things. And it's very difficult when they already have closed off their mind to these conversations. So, you know, my invitation is always for them to civilly and peacefully have these discourses, these intellectual conversations to think on things and consider it and to understand that we are all tied to everything else. Uh, everything is connected. And for Native people, we're very much plugged into the world and the universe in a different way than most folks are, especially because we've been into 
the landscape or the places that we live in for a very, very long time. So you have to do these many types of filtering. Depends on who you're talking to. If I'm talking to environmentalists or lawyers or conservationists or Mormons, like I got to use different lenses and filters for that. So even from a scientific perspective, we are the first scientists. We have accumulated long-term aggregated data about a place and its inhabitants. And we know the best way to manage that land. And for too long, we haven't been included in that process. And this is not just protection for this land, but it's the proposal of changing the entire game as we know it of conservation and preservation by including indigenous voices at the table for land management planning processes. Thank you so much for saying that indigenous peoples have been left out of that discussion about the best way to steward and conserve land is so and has been so detrimental for so many years and we're seeing the consequences of that. We're seeing it all around us. Driving through Turtle Island, there's really hardly places anymore where we don't see the consequences of not respecting traditional ecological knowledge. If there was respect given to indigenous science, mm. what would conservation look like? Let's just say in Bear's Ear specifically, in, in the place that you know in your heart and your physical world. Right. Well, this is, you know, sort of the unfortunate case of where we're at right now is because we're ready to implement the different ideas and plans, the proposals of our communities to do that very thing for better protection, for a different way of looking at it, for inclusion, a reorienting of both our communities and the public for protecting a landscape. But we never really got that chance, you know, from the very beginning ever since the administration switched over, there's been hesitancy on the part of federal agencies. There has been meetings and people really developing these sort of contingencies for what can be happening next. But nothing really kind of got off the ground too much because it's so volatile this year politically and across different agencies that it's hard for anything to be sustained. And it's really unfortunate because the losing of the monument or the reduction of it, the changing of that monument and of Escalante and these spaces really are not just about having it reduced in the eyes of the government, but it never really got, you know, to the point where we had the opportunity to show what we're about and what we're going to do and how we could do it. So there's a lot of intertribal interests about this landscape in which we could all share and prosper and trying to not just manage together this space, but to also have a new kind of database, something that would protect traditional knowledge in a stronger, more efficient and culturally relevant way. You know, something that could really be coming from our side, our perspective, our voices, and, you know, really have a different angle on the histories that have been written out there primarily by non-native settler colonial and especially around here, Mormon authors and historians. So I think there's a lot of potential here that got undercut, which is unfortunate because it's not just about that piece. 
I think people had a really good opportunity to learn about Native people because a lot of them don't know anything about Native people. We always have to pierce through several layers of ignorance because they don't know, first of all, that we're not all dead, <laughs> that we're actually very much alive and that we exist. And two, like how the trajectory of history has sort of put us in this position to be painted as adversarial when that has actually never been the case with this monument. You know, it's always been a process of inclusion. If anything, I think the Bears Ears National Monument really has made people aware of the other surrounding underlying issues. So there's plenty of discrimination, racism, some favoritism and, you know, different settler colonial systems and structures that leave us out, don't include us, don't have a voice at the table and have like these really latent and overt forms of oppression. So for me, it's kind of just been this interesting progression, being a resident and living here. I even hesitate to say resident because that's identifying and buying into another system that isn't mine. We've been here for a long, long time. And so there's a difference between when people say, oh, my family's ranched here and they put their homestead up here for generations. Like, When you're saying generations, you mean like a few, right? Because you guys came in like the 1800s. But when we say generations, we mean like a few thousand at least, you know, and that goes way, way deeper and way, way farther back. And so our route to this place and to what matters for us is conceptually a very different definition. And I think there's a lot of confusion between what people are talking about and trying to clarify exactly what they mean when they're speaking about these things in these terms. And it's a difficult conversation to have because, you know, Western thought is very linear, simple and direct and black and white for them. You know, there's like these very Euro-American concepts that have been adopted into this American context, method, of practice and approach. And indigenous thought is more cyclical. Everything is tied to everything else. If anything, you could say that it's complex systems analysis and that it's also accumulated data and it's very observational. And we've seen what happens to a landscape over decades, centuries, eons. And these two conversations have yet to really find a fruitful place. But I think the place to do it now are in these conversations with conservationists and wildlife groups, environmental organizations, nonprofits, because even though they may have good intentions and they have done really good work, I think too often they also leave out the indigenous voice. They also leave out participation and input and they are very passionate and have conviction, but they also need to work on establishing relationships with the native people of whatever lands they're trying to protect, because that is always lacking. And, you know, it's pretty clear from any kind of government organization to any political group and to any nonprofits that that interaction has been very limited historically. And so we're trying to change that. And I think that's significant 
for the national monument that we've established here is, you know, a lot of those groups that want to partner with us, we urge them and we have established this, this kind of understanding that you guys don't get to speak for the tribes. We have our own elders and our own leaders who are directing which way we should go. And what we want you to do is to support them, is to back them up and to give them the time and the space and the resources and give them additional supplemental support to get what needs to be done because they know the best way to take care of these lands. So it's a lot of give and take and it's really new. We're making the road by walking it. But, you know, from what I've seen, it's been also a very positive, uplifting and productive process. It's something that we've needed to do for far too long anyway. We're a little bit behind the curve. So I'm just kind of happy that a lot of these groups are um, taking the time to put in that work right now because, you know, it will be better for everyone in the end. I couldn't agree more. And I feel that, and I've talked about this a lot on the show with a number of different people that it's actually been so detrimental to conservation and environmental justice to basically be a white supremacist movement in a lot of senses. It's been detrimental to the actual environment, the lands itself, the lands themselves. Mm -hmm. So I really couldn't agree more that this new paradigm is about giving respect to traditional ecological knowledge, indigenous leadership, and understanding a new way. And I loved how you said that this path is new because you're bushwhacking this path forward and getting into some of the complexities that you started to speak on. Mm -hmm. I was really blown away by tremendously complicated work coming from the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition and Utah Diné to protect Bears Ears. Mm -hmm. So I would love if you could speak about the Intertribal Coalition and what it took to bring the proposal to Washington in 2016. Part of that story is in the uh, documentary film that I made called Shashja Bears Ears, which ironically was already the title of it a year and a half ago before Trump decided to culturally appropriate that for his own political ends. So it's really kind of a divide and conquer tactic is what he's doing right now because it's a coalition and one is not above the other. And so what he's trying to do is make it seem like the Navajos have curried his favor and that we're getting the designation in the name of the Navajo term for it. But that's not true at all. He actually never consulted us, never once sat down with us and asked us what he thought should be the name of the monument. So I want to put that out there, too, because I think a lot of people probably have their own ideas of why it's called what it's called. But we want to stand firm in saying that we're still a coalition. We're still together. And we're still working to protect the same landscape, but there's power in naming. Even though the power is trying to be used against us, we still understand that it doesn't matter what language it's in. In all the five tribe languages, it still bears ears. So for us, that's really significant. You know, each time somebody says having the two buttes looking like ears, they can see that it's called bears ears for a reason. I maintain it goes deeper than that. 
because you have to understand all of the languages from the different tribes had their own way of developing their own cultural nuances through the language. And in every one of those languages, it's called bear's ears from Athabascan, Dene to Udo-Aztecan, and then even Zuni, which is a language isolate, meaning they didn't really have the interaction or the development from other surrounding communities. They came up on their own. And even to them, it was called bear's ears. So that suggests to me that the place had its own personality, its own power, its own gift, revealed itself in its own relationship to each group of these people. And it is the bear's ears. It's not just a name. So the elders, the elected leaders, the group that went to D.C., you know, is documenting all of their journey in this short documentary film to say how much work it was and how beautiful and fruitful that work for their communities was going, you know, to get a record and a sense of their journey, all the footwork running around D.C., trying to go to community to community, have meetings to talk to various governments, local, county, state, tribal, federal. It's a large undertaking. And, you know, they wouldn't have done that if they didn't need to. Because, you know, as I stated before, there's such a large amount of discrimination and racism here in San Juan County and with the state of Utah, as we've seen with the treatment of Native peoples throughout this process of the monument reduction, that we actually had to just activate that nation-to-nation relationship that we have as tribal treaty nations to the federal government and sit down with the Obama administration and the former Secretary of the Interior, Hallie Jewell, to propose this 1.9 million acre monument for the protection of the sacred space. And what we found was that they were more than willing to listen. As a matter of fact, they were very considerate and careful with what they wanted to do and how they were going to craft the language of the proclamation. And if you read the proclamation, you can kind of see, even in its written form, it's really such a beautiful essay. It's inclusive of all the tribes. It talks about the other than human beings that are there. It talks about the history and the culture and the unique ecological and delicate life that is existing there and why it's important culturally for Native people. And I think probably the most important section is that inclusion of the traditional knowledge aspect. It's not just about the traditional knowledge of taking care of the land. It's also of the material culture, the archaeological sites, the pottery, sandals, the grinding stones, arrowheads, like all of these things that have been looted and stolen for so long that needed protection were finally being included in as a real solid safeguard because this is really the highly trafficked and disrespected taking of our ancestors which is still alive and well unfortunately and that's where it really connects to the international repatriation because there are plenty of this material that's been stolen locally 
nationally and internationally, and it's still out there. So people have gotten in trouble for that right here in San Juan County. Dozens of people here in Blanding that were involved with that. You know, this is kind of just acknowledgement that we exist, that we've existed and that this is our place and we're here, we're still here and we're always going to be here. And I think that was important coming from the federal government, coming from the president, coming from former Secretary Sally Jewell, because it was a form of healing. It's still new for this government to figure out how to make things better and how to make things right. And so this isn't ultimately the the best or optimal solution, but it was a start. And whereas we would have loved to get some kind of authoritative crafting of policy embedded into land management planning processes, we didn't get that in the proclamation. We're more of like an advisory or consultative body, but it's still the step in the right direction. It's one of the only pieces of legislation that include Native people the way that it does. And that's in part due to the wonderful leadership of our elders, of our elected officials, of the people who we deem community leaders here and have done all of that groundwork for years, for decades. And I think this is something that we've always tried to get attention towards, but only now has become such an issue with both public lands and national monuments and national parks being under threat for privatization, natural resource extraction, having people doing more and more activities that would disrupt and desecrate these very delicate areas. So I've always been a, an advocate of protecting these places far back as I can remember because you know I grew up here and I saw it growing up. I saw a lot of the mistreatment of the people and the places and the materials. And, you know, I think something that folks, they often forget is that these forms of violence often translate into overt forms of violence against people. So whenever somebody goes down to bluff and goes around Combe Ridge and tries to shoot the rock art and the petroglyphs and the really delicate thousands of years old depictions of these sacred places and people and deities on the wall. And they're doing it very intentionally. They have to actually get a good position to do that and sit there and take shots at it. That has never really happened before because those places are difficult to get to. They're remote. They're really difficult terrain to get to and people appear to be making an effort and it appears to be an effort to do that out of spite and hatred and you know frustration that native people are becoming more assertive in their own management of lands their own political goals their own ideas about like their identity and how they should get their recognition and acknowledgement of their existence. Because a lot of history in the United States has happened in the taking of the West, the expansion and settler colonial goals of uh, westward domination. It was due to the dispossession and the removal of Native people. But the way to do that is to see them as less than human. 
It's to dehumanize them. And what is the best, easiest way that you can do that? Well, you see them like things, like objects, like something that can be cut down and broken and shot, you know, that can be destroyed as a thing can be broken. And that's what they're trying to do still. And for me, even though it's not really the same thing as like going into a community and gunning people down, it might as well be because those depictions of ancestors, of spirits, of places and people, those are our ancestors and they do have spirit. They do have energy. And it's an assault on us when they do that. And what's to stop them from going the next step and objectifying Native people in the same way? You know, if you can take a shot in the crosshairs of a rifle at our ancestors, then what's going to stop them from doing that here, now, in this time, but with people walking around in our community? So this is a very tense and difficult time. And I think that you can see that through the development of several lawsuits that are against the San Juan County right now. And, you know, it's all these things, like I was saying, that were coming up affiliated with the monument that actually existed before. But in the end, that's what we're really talking about, isn't it? We're trying to get to the source, the root of the problem. And that's what has to be taken care of. It's this, you know, the sickness this historical trauma, this intergenerational trauma that has affected and impacts us to the current day. And we're not going to get anywhere unless we address that. We're not going to move forward in a meaningfully, positively productive way unless we can get the acknowledgement that one, discrimination has happened, racism has happened, two, it's still happening. You know, and how can we talk about those kinds of things? Because in the larger scheme of things, this is one story of many, many stories. This is not Standing Rock. It's its own thing, but it's just like Standing Rock in that it's still a struggle for indigenous land. It's still a struggle for protecting ancient sites, burial sites, ancestral lands. It's still something that is relevant to the American public and they need to acknowledge our existence and help us in meaningfully solid allyship ways. And it's one of many other struggles for acknowledgement and existence and respect. And for me, I think what makes this so different is that the people here, they've really done the groundwork and trying to go forward in a good way. And it's hard. It tests me. <laughs> you know, you have to be patient. You have to be kind and considerate and hear the people who are speaking, whether you agree with them or not. Coalition building is hard. Partnerships are hard. Collaborations are so difficult. It's some of the hardest work I've ever done. Uh, it takes time, it takes energy, it takes patience, but it's meaningful and it's working. And that's what we need to do. And it's probably the hardest thing to do because it's the best thing that we can do. And it's very, very difficult to acknowledge these traumas, what we've done to each other, what's being done to us now, what has happened in the past. But it's very important to get to that root and find a better way to heal ourselves from the inside out. 
Angela, thank you. That was so deep and meaningful to hear and really horrific to hear about the violence against your ancestors. I had no idea that people were shooting at these sites, these sacred sites that is so devastating. And when you spoke about what's going to stop these people from provoking violence against you and the people that are alive in these places. And I think back to conversations I've had with Candy Mossett, who lives in North Dakota, or Ariel Duranger, another indigenous activist in the tar sands regions of Alberta, and hearing about the man camps and the violence that extreme oil extraction brings when settlers come into native communities. So I know that that is happening, and globally, not just in, quote, North America. And it is so heartbreaking that the frustration and the disrespect and all of the wounds and the trauma that you were speaking of is being released in this way. And that luckily, all of the people you've been speaking about, your elders, the elders all over Turtle Island are coalition building and the grassroots organizations are coalition building and are speaking to people on the other side of the spectrum to find a way forward as difficult as it is, as exhausting and I'm sure frustrating at times as it is just the Utah politics and the divide that seems to permeate Utah and much of the West in regards to public land and the opposing argument, you know, these protective designations, the federal overreach that restrict autonomy and economy. And it's interesting because several million people visit Utah's national parks each year, which must contribute to the state's economy. And then I also was thinking about the legal case, the federal legal case. And I understand that there is a level of discretion in regards to the lawsuit recently filed in federal court. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering if you could just help us or make us aware of what is unfolding, you know, who is involved. So whatever you could speak to about the federal case, and then also whatever you could speak to about the politics in Utah, I would really love to understand that a bit better. Sure. You know, I have always maintained that Native representation, self-representation, our own Indigenous voice in the media is historically always limited. And we've never really had a better time than now to actually put out our own things and, you know, have our own voices from our own side, our own perspective, which was one of the goals of the documentary was that they were going to tell their side and I was going to tell mine as well because, you know, my grandmother's in that film and I'm not hiding it. I make no illusions like this is where I'm from and it's coming from this perspective, you know, and it's very important to us and here's why. So when I go into that explanation, really for me, I'm talking about giving power to the native perspective, giving the voice to our leaders and our elders. And, you know, I think that's something that in the media hasn't been represented very well. I would say about 75% of what's been put out there comes primarily from outsiders just looking in and not exactly knowing what the entire story is and that we've been left out of those 
reports. We've been left out of those documentaries and those films and those journalistic excursions. So we don't have really that much of a native voice or representation in those. I'd say probably a quarter of what's been put out there now is that. They ask people from our coalition, they ask people from our leadership and our elders, and they take the time. They take the time to understand and ask questions and figure out what's really going on and what is what is it from their side, you know. To date, you know, most of what's been dominating the news is about local, state, federal politics. And, you know, much of what's been really substantial in development of the monument and the development of trying to influence land management planning processes with all kinds of groups has been lost in the shuffle. So what we're trying to do now is really make sure as much as possible that we get the story out in a complete or a more complete way uh, as much as you know we can have involvement in to get our voice represented well. Like We don't want to be misquoted. We don't want to be trivialized, tokenized, or otherwise used for political or media purposes. It's a very delicate time right now. We're doing really extremely hard work. There's a lot of travel. There's a lot of planning, a lot of meetings. There's a real danger of just kind of losing what the focus is and then having our coalition folks getting burned out a lot. But, you know, that's what's really cool about this is it's an invigorating work. And I really am there to supplement and help them out with the representations that they're putting out there to the public. And so for us to actually ask what is going on with them and what is happening on the ground, it's still fairly new. We're still trying to educate people in the community uh, here in the state of Utah as well and out nationally and internationally by what's going on. And, you know, there's so many different ways to interpret that. And we bring them up to speed, first of all, through the history, like I've been saying, with the development of the proposal and also the proclamation itself, because there's a lot of great information contained in it and it's not very long. And if you read it, there's great inclusions of the tribes, of the traditional ecological knowledge, of the the laws involved and the history of the place. But also there's more of the technical aspects about, you know, what's happening legally with the designation processes and now the proposed reduction by Trump. I think it's safe to say that most legal scholars agree that the president doesn't have authority to do what he's doing. It has to be made, certified by Congress. It has to be passed by them and endorsed by them. And he can't unilaterally do the reduction or the shrinking or the annihilation of any monument because there isn't any provision for him to do that in the Antiquities Act of 1906. There is only authority for the president to designate and so for him to do anything more or do anything else, he's going to need the backing of the entire Congress to do that. So we feel really confident that actually what he's doing is not legal in a court of law. It'll stand up to a challenge. But what he's doing right now is actually trying to make the Curtis Bill happen. And the Curtis Bill is actually probably the most dangerous aspect of what's happening now 
because that would basically amend the law so that it could make what he's doing legal. So really what we were asking people to do in partnership and solidarity with all of our allies is to go against and kill the Curtis bill because they're trying to push it through. It's already got a subcommittee meeting. They're trying to do it quietly. They're trying to do it quickly. But I think the more people who know about it and can actually speak out against it are doing public lands a huge favor all over the place because that's going to give the president less power and authority legally to keep on encroaching on these lands. And I think that's something that is setting the precedent in this administration. You can see that how they snuck in drilling into the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge up in Alaska with through the tax bill. And that received very little fanfare or attention because the parties are playing up the whole tax cut that people are getting money. But, you know, the money doesn't come from nowhere. Somebody pays for it. And, you know, indigenous people, indigenous lands that are paying for it. Again, we've had the Gwich'in relatives come all the way to D.C. to try to protest this whole action and this, this inclusion of the drilling of their lands in that bill. Unfortunately, that bill has passed. So now we're thinking about what does that mean? Well, that seems to be kind of the the going rate for this administration. They just are trying to tack on many of these little things that will accumulate into allowing them more opportunities to destroy and do exploratory ventures and natural resource uh, exploration and come in and develop these places that have no business being developed. They should be left alone the way that they are. And there's good reason for that besides just having this idea about, you know, what people think about conservation and preservation and management. You know, it's time to ask the people who have been there the longest, the indigenous people, why that's so important and why it needs protection. So that's where we're at right now. We're all trying to focus on what it means to do an action in court to challenge the president on the legality of his actions. And it's interesting to see so many other allies and groups come out and also support that effort and also even file their own lawsuits. Yeah, it'll be interesting. You know, I mean, the legal part of it is only one part. And I submit to you that can't be the only focus, you know, that no matter what happens, that A, this is still native land, it's still indigenous, we're still here, we're still gonna be here, and we're still gonna, you know, defend this land. And two, the relationships that we've made, the partnerships that we've made, the collaboration that's in development in this process matters so much more than the immediate urgency of reacting to something that we don't all have as much control over as we would like. Because in the long-term scheme of things, we've been here long enough to know that there will always be people like this. <laughs> there will always be people who want more, who get greedy, want to take something from somebody else, and that they're trying to come in and assert what they think is power. But it's not power. Power is the land. Power is the elements, the plants and the animals. It's nature that is larger than us, and we could never, ever be larger than it. We could never even have the illusion that we'd be in control of it, ever. We're just a part of it. 
And so we have to go and reorient ourselves and shift our focus into feeling as complete as we can as human beings by making these good positive relationships going forward now because that's what we're going to have to teach the next generation. This generation has chosen its path and we don't agree with it and in terms of the leadership but you know that's not to say that it will always be this way and the generations are learning very fast what is happening before what's going on right now and how they could change it in the future. So to me there's like there's light at the end of the tunnel. It's not all doom and gloom, but there's so much work that we have to do in the meantime. I just loved what you said that this legal component is not the whole story and the relationships that are being built and the coalitions that are being supported. This is what's going to see us through generations to come. Trump is not going to be the last person who's going to try to steal lands and develop. And as climate continues to change and resources are even more sought after. This is something that we're going to be up against for years to come. And so the relationship building, the coalition building, supporting each other and learning how to work through this trauma and wounding and getting out of the sick settler colonizer mindset for conservation and environmentalists. Like this is really the work that I think and agree with you that's going to see us through. It's just (laughs) incredible to hear about the Curtis Act. I definitely want to stay on top of that. And I think our audience should as well. So that it's not something that's just brushed under the rug, like the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which is so devastating because the Gochin people have been standing for this land, their land, for so many years and through so many different presidencies, but standing together, building these relationships. And I guess it also just feels that these legal battles for the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and for Bears Ears, it is altering the course of American land conservation and The Antiquities Act and the protection of lands is so far beyond Bear's ears. Just to think that if we don't stand right now for Bear's ears, what the consequences could be beyond that with more lands that would be opened up to the assault of oil, gas, mining, logging, and privatization. And so it really feels that this story, the Bear's ear story, is fundamentally a story of indigenous sovereignty. Yes, that is another layer, I think, of education that must be achieved. There's quite a lot of evidence that we are not really included in conversations in multiple Western systems, education, law, economics, even especially here in Utah, religious institutions. 
we're not really given the space or time or the involvement, participation, and respect. That's the key thing is the respect. The respect and acknowledgement is not, it's not prioritized by a lot of non-Native people, unfortunately. And so we have to kind of catch people up really quickly. And, you know, one of the stereotypes that they have about us is that they think that we're not in existence. We don't have a community. We don't have tribes. We don't have treaties, you know, and the fact of the matter is like a treaty is, is significant because it's right up there at the level of constitutional law. And, you know, as one of the supreme laws of the land, it's very much an agreement that was made long time ago in the service of recognizing this country as a nation by other nations. They needed a treaty to sign with other sovereign nations to be recognized by their their older brothers and sisters out in Europe, you know, so they could be taken seriously. But we hold true still that those treaty agreements are binding. They still apply and they still need to be honored. Most, if not all of those treaties have been broken. And that doesn't say a lot for the faith of the process of governance in this country. For us, we're trying to do what's right. We're trying to exhaust every single available option for doing the right thing, even though we know that it's difficult because historically, what do we have to believe in? <laughs> Governance-wise, the data shows us that this country won't honor agreements with Native people. And, you know, that's apparently still seems to be the case. And we're trying very hard to just do the right thing and try to get people, the citizens of this country, to be on board with us to do the right thing because they have way more power than they think they do. They just have to wake up and start activating that power. I mean, that's what we did as an intertribal coalition. We're figuring out the direction of all these, you know, discussions that we're having about the land. And we're still being disrespected. We're still being marginalized. Our voices were rendered invisible. And, you know, they were being rude and disrespectful and not acknowledging them. And so that's when they had to go and take it up to the next level and go right to the administration to activate that nation-to-nation treaty relationship and assert their tribal sovereignty. So I'm trying to communicate that to every single person that you have power, albeit it may be limited in certain ways, but you have way more power than you think you do. You can use your own voice. You can speak out against your disapproval of these tactics of your government, of your leadership. That's what you have as an American citizen. It's a right. And it wasn't just something that was born out of these high ideals. Like Those are reified and evoked every single day because you still have people who are practicing those justice ideals in these different organizations, as well as like out in the military. Like for us, we have per capita the most veterans, native veterans in the United States military. And at first glance, that might seem contradictory because you're like, why would you be a soldier in in a military that has historically been genocidal in its campaigns against native people? But you have to also realize that the ideal 
is to protect the land, to protect the nation, to protect our people, our home. This is our home. America, the United States, like this whole idea preceding that, this is our home and we'll protect it. And I think that was most powerfully expressed at Standing Rock when we had our own Native veterans come out and they were there in solidarity with us because they served this country. They put their lives on the line and they're still doing it. They're still warriors. They're still protectors for our places. And I think this is something that while we get the motivation to be protective and proactive and have action directly, we also understand that Standing Rock itself became somewhat of a more adversarial, confrontational, even warlike zone. People were clashing and somebody got hurt they lost an arm there, like blood was shed. You know, people were hurt there. And we don't want that for the Bears Ears landscape. It's a sacred place of healing, and that's something that we have to keep intact. And so we don't really want a lot of people to come in and occupy and camp here. We understand and we're grateful for the support, but the elders, the traditional leaders, the elected leadership have all expressed, especially from the coalition, that they welcome, you know, support, but in the ways that they deem the most necessary. And that right now is, as I stated before, trying legislatively to kill the Curtis bill or the Curtis Act and to try to minimize, mitigate the larger implications for other sacred lands, indigenous lands that will be under attack, you know, if we don't pay attention to what's happening politically right now in the landscape in the country. So I understand that need to want to defend and protect our places, but it's not the right time and it's not the right place. And we have to learn from each single one of these movements and what they have to offer us. And that goes for both sides. That goes for, you know, the state and the federal governments and for the protectors of land and water. How can we learn from last time to do better this time? What is it that we could figure out through our processes, our protocols, our respect, our acknowledgement, the proper way to do things and to do them better? Yes, learning, learning from these challenges and experiences that we're in together and thank you for speaking of the power of the citizen in this country that we do have power and being able to be united we are more powerful to get behind the indigenous leaders of these lands and heed what is actually wanted for support although Standing Rock was potent and just incredible, all the connections and beauty that came out of that particular movement, that that is not the Bears Ears movement, that this is a healing place, like you've said. Just thinking about the elders of Bears Ears, I think about your grandmother, who you've spoke about a few times and who is featured in your documentary, Into America, the Ancestors Land. 
And in your documentary, she recounts being pushed out of her ancestral home by oil development, uranium mining, and Mormon settlers. And I'm curious, what do you think your grandmother would want us to know about Bear's Ears? I don't know. I mean, it's a good question. She left us last year in November, and she never got to see the monument designated. So she worked very hard with me. And everything that you see on the films, Into America, the Bears Years film, that's years. That's years of her talking with me, telling me stories, interacting with me, feeling comfortable enough to be on camera because she never liked to be on camera. And it was her choice. You know, I never pressured her to do it. I always just asked her a lot about how it was important and what it meant in, uh, it's always hard to watch that movie because you know, I miss her. And uh, she taught me a lot. And I think she's still teaching us. You know, that film is literally going all over the world and um, it's telling people the story. And so I just try to honor her memory by doing this work tried to think about the things that she would want to try to protect, keep safe, keep in a good way. For her, it's like, it's all connected, you know. It's not just the Bears Ears landscape itself, but all the way down into the rest of the county where it was being drilled, poisoned, you know, the the oil and the mining and uh, all these places where natural resource extracting is slowly killing us. So I think she's really still teaching a lot of people. You know, it's it's been a difficult year for people, especially in my family. But I think that she's also really instrumental in this movement. We tried a lot to get people to do the right thing to understand what's happening here. We wondered for years if anybody was listening to us, you know. We were trying very much to educate people and to get them motivated, inspired, and trying to get them to do something, just do something. You know, we're doing the best that we can with whatever that we can. And, you know, she told her story she tells her story still. I tell stories too with my camera. The camera is a very powerful tool and it reaches a lot of people. And there's a lot of impact and influence that is being made, you know, some movement that's happening. It's a shifting of historically what's been going on here. It's a little bit tough because. Sometimes it feels like you take a step forward and a couple steps back, but something changed and something's going to be different now. Like even just this last week, the county got ordered to redistrict here and fix the gerrymandered boundaries that favored the non-native people here in San Juan County. And now we actually have it redistricted so that it's more distributed equitably and not along racial lines. 
in favor of the uh, group that has been dominating the political landscape forever. Like it has not changed, but it's going to change now. And I wish she could be here for that to understand like stuff's happening. It's changing. Like the things that we're doing hopefully will make things better. And I'm prepared for that. I'm prepared to have these hard conversations with people who should be having them, you know, with us talking about all these different levels of native involvement that need to happen. It's really tough. It challenges everybody. And I just feel really lucky and really blessed to be doing this work. I do miss my grandmother and I wish she was here, but I feel really lucky I had the time with her and that she let me share her story with other people. I'm always grateful for that. And I always know exactly what I'm doing <laughs> in the morning and I get up and I feel like this is what I'm supposed to do. You know, and this is very good, meaningful, fulfilling work. And I feel optimistic about it as I know it's not just me. It's a lot of our other elders, our other, you know, how we say like in our relation, uh, our chays and our, our nollies, our, our grandmas, shamasana, you know, like we use these kinship terms with each other. We identify each other again by that clan name. Like, oh, they're identified because we hold a same clan line and here's how we're related. This is how I address you. You're my grandfather or you're my uncle or you're my brother or my sister, or my cousin, my grandma, you know, and that's originally how we established our social relations, our kinship, and it's, it's making us return to that. And we have to shift, decolonize our minds and think about how did we do this before when everyone was taken care of, when everyone didn't have to worry because we had our community and we had our place that we took care of. So it's it's a challenging work. And we just have to hold both and in a great Western and traditional knowledge together so we can all find a way forward. Yes, I think it's so incredible hearing you speak about your grandmother and that relationship, that deep respect and love and connection with our family with our human family and how she opened up to the camera and so generously shared her story so that others could learn and be awakened and how much you are guided by her. I'm sure it's sparking a lot of emotions in the people who are listening. This reawakening of respect for our elders. I'm just, again, thinking back to your documentary, and I'm wondering if you would feel comfortable sharing a short story from your grandmother that she shared. Yeah, there's so much more in the film that wasn't really included because I was trying to make it a short. So there's plenty of different stories and things there that you know she contributed to, as well as a great many other people. And I could only take parts and portions of those things. But, you know, something that stands out to me is she took me out when I was a kid to that area in Combe Ridge. And we looked at all these plants. And she would tell me what these plants were for. She'd be like, this one is for 
when the sheep are sick, they can eat this and it, it makes them feel better. Or here's some tea for when you're not feeling well. Or, you know, here's something that is healthy for you. And watch out for this one. You don't want to eat this one. It looks like this. And, you know, I didn't know at the time how valuable that information was. I was still a kid. But there's like so much deep ethnobotanical scientific knowledge that's embedded in the traditional knowledge that we have. And she was teaching me a lot of that. And I wish I had paid more attention. You know, I wish I had done more and spent more time. I wish that that was my job and that was all I did. That was all I could do. And I have these struggles about getting my education and going to work and doing these things that takes me away from here. And for me, I didn't have as much time that I would have liked with my grandfather. You know, he was gone when I was a kid. Although the few times I did spend with him, he took me out to Bears Ears. He took me out there and, it, you know, he showed me that it was a sacred place and he showed me very special ceremonial places there. For me, that's always been a, a safe place as it has been historically, you know, we've always gone there to really get away from the marauders or invaders or military roundups that people would try to do to native folks. And they knew that land, you know, they knew it well, they traveled so much. My grandfather and my grandmother were all over the place. They would go everywhere and they just, you know, knew these places like the back of their hand I can remember even just going on a road in Bears Ears and grandmother would tell me, and remember, she doesn't speak any English at all. It's all Navajo. And she's like, watch out around this corner. Be careful. Slow down. There are usually a lot of deer right here. As soon as I turn that corner, there's like 11 deer in a line going across the road. Like, how do you know that? (laughs) You know, and it's because she knows the place and she knows the animals and the habitats and where they live and where they go, where they graze and travel. And it's like, that's what I mean is that relationship to the place and knowing what it takes to take care of it. You know, she didn't say, get out of the truck and go take one of them. <laughs> you know, she's just like, be careful. There's a lot of them right here. They usually come out, you know, and I respect immensely the knowledge that the elders hold in the traditional folks who have access to these wells and depths of accumulated wisdom. And I'm just really honored that they are able to share that with us now. I I think it's lost on people how special that is. It's not easy. Nobody wants to like just hand over their stuff to you. They don't know you, but they're trusting you the people, the public, that you can do better than the ones before you did, that you can be a steward of this land too, that you can also put in your time and your effort and your work, and that you can also be responsible and accountable for the landscape that you have benefited on for generations. So I think that's, that's the challenge, you know. We're inclusive but it comes with responsibility, comes with accountability. It comes with listening and learning and trying to do better than the ones before you did. And I think that's what 
the monument for me means because there's no difference between that and what I am every single day, what I do every single day. I'll go out there and I remember where she took me to go look at those plants. I remember where the, the crossing of the deer are. I remember where we harvested medicine that my grandfather favored. You know, I remember the stories of where my uncles hunted up on bear's ears. Those are blessings and those are shared blessings, but they got to be taken care of just like anything else. If you don't take care of your gifts, they have a danger of going away. So for me, you know, I'm trying to tell people about bear's ears on every level conceivable that I can try to attempt to do legally, historically, culturally, environmentally. Like, what is it? What is it that helps you understand what we're trying to do here? What's your language? Because I can try to speak that dialect, <laughs> you know. So I'm trying very much to see how people can be reached and listen and understand what we're doing and that, you know, everybody's in this together. We've all got accountability here. We've all got responsibility here. And we all have to move forward together. Oh, my goodness. Your words, your heart, you are so clear. And I feel the earth in you and your grandmother, although I am many, many miles away. It translates even through this strange technology that we're communicating through right now. And it's been so incredible speaking with you and emotionally opening to hear your love and your deep connection. I'm so grateful for you. And I guess my last question, although we have touched on it, is I'm sure many people who have now listened to our conversation and who have been privy to parts of what have been going on in Bear's Ears are eager to get involved, to help, you know, are probably even wondering, does the protection of Bear's Ears stay in place until the lawsuit is finished or will the BLM be able to auction leases in 2018? And what are some of the next steps? And yes, there's the Curtis Act and, you know, there's things that we've touched on, but if there's just some parting notes clarifying notes for those of us listening of what we can do, what advice and guidance can you share with us as citizens of this country that we can do to stand in integrity and with respect to the leaders, the elders, the indigenous peoples of this land? How can we support? I think it's a great question and it's it's a question that people have whenever they feel like, you know, they're the most powerless. And I think that's a good time for people to reflect just exactly who they are, where they come from, what they do, what their values are, what they want for the future. Because, you know, you know, we're trying to think of it in an indigenous way where everything is connected. We're not just thinking about ourselves. We're thinking about our children and their children and their children's children and so forth and so on, that kind of seven generations thinking, right? So 
for us, it's really trying to understand how to best communicate these concepts and have people take the right forms of action that they're capable of doing, that they're able to do. Basically, it's always a struggle for us to meet them where they're at because everybody's at a certain different place, right? And we're doing a lot of catch up for people. And so, you know, it depends on which people we're talking about or talking to. So like if we were talking to like, you know, environmentalist folks or conservation people, it's like, you guys are doing good work. We like that, but please let the tribes lead. Listen to them, consult with them, ask them. Don't appropriate their image or their words or come in and try to do something in their name if they don't feel like that's accurate or respectful or, you know, giving them the proper voice at the table, which, you know, people sometimes do that wittingly or unwittingly. They do. And, you know, if I were to say also like from just an average person's citizen perspective, like you have power, you have a voice. People died a lot for you to have voice and for you to either agree or disagree with your leadership. You can dissent or you can consent. Whatever one it is that you want to do, you can do it. Now's the time. You know, the future of this country is in everybody's hands. And I think for us, we're really cognizant that we're trying our best as Native communities. We're wearing several hats. There's not just the one of us that has like one position and that's all we do. It's like, no, we're, we're trying to keep our nations running. You know, we are at capacity. We're always at max speed, max capacity, or we don't have as much ability to stretch our work and our time and our dollar as we would like. And so you have that power individually and collectively to be able to utilize what you do have. If you have time, you can volunteer at one of these places. You can volunteer for, you know, one of the coalition's organizations or any of their partners that we're allied with. Or if you have effort and energy, you can, you know, try to utilize a, a group or a space or some kind of organizing effort that will make people aware of what's happening to our lands and what's happening politically on the landscape and try to curb something like the Curtis bill or, you know, kill the, the act. And I think there's lots of ways that we haven't really taken the time to reflect how much as American citizens, we have power, we have resources, energy, time, social status, credentials, education, that's a lot more than most people in the world have. So use it. If you feel that strongly about it, use it, but use it in a good way. Because in the end, really the thing that we have to keep intact is our humanity. You know, because if we lose that, then we become just like the aggressors. We become just like the predators. We become just like the greedy ones who want to take and not give anything back. So it's all about the basics, basic human beings, right? Figuring out how to learn, how to share, how to be respectful, to listen. All very simple stuff, but very, very difficult to do in practice. 
and will be challenged to do it again and again with different kinds of people. And so my challenge is for whoever you are that feels strongly about these things, now's the time to do that with the indigenous people wherever you are. Wherever you live in this country, there's indigenous people. You might think they're not, you may think they're all gone, but they're out there. We're alive, we're here, and you know we're waiting to have these conversations with you. So I think on a practical level, that's what people can do, both politically, both community building, allyship, trying to learn some good protocols about how to build these partnerships and do things in a good and powerful way. Thank you so, so, so much, Angelo. This has been such a gift of a conversation for me and for all of those who will listen to this. I just have so much gratitude for you and everything that you've said and even the tone of your voice is so true and there's so much love and depth to what you shared with us. And I feel honored to have spent this time with you. I feel so comforted knowing that you are alive and you are committed and dedicated to the work and the way in which you do the work you do. So thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks for having me here. And I appreciate, you know, all the listeners that want to learn and, and do something well. So I, I want them to do that this next year, you know, change the world for the better. featured in this episode was by Aldine Ketchum, who's the Ute Mountain Ute spiritual leader. Our theme music is Bow with Silence Returns and Like a River by Kate Wolf. I'd like to thank our producers Reach Out and March Young, our research director Madison Mogolski, and our media director Molly Lebo. I'm Ayana Young. Thank you for tuning in. This podcast is community supported. So please head over to forthewild.world to make a contribution. And while you're on the website, look out for our new podcast study guides. Until next week. Like a river.